0: My friend Helen and I, we were 20 years old when we arrived in Tokyo, with no expectations, less money, and not a single word of Japanese between us. We had left behind a provincial, uh, recession-battered country that looked determinedly backwards, where a young person's ambition extended no further than the ferry to London, where sex between men was a criminal offence, you couldn't buy a beer in a nightclub, pregnant girls used to go away for a few months and then come back without babies, Priests could be famous for just being priests. (laughs) (laughs) And suddenly we were standing in the center of this gleaming, futuristic, cash-rich, crowded human megapolis with moving pavements and toilets that wiped your arse (laughs) for (laughs) you. And we had no responsibilities and only one aim, to have a good time. Now, we needed money, of course, and I found a job teaching English quickly enough. But boring stuff like work and visas and food and sleep were just annoying distractions from my deadly serious mission to have fun. Now, I quickly discovered and made a second home out of Tokyo's infamous gay district, Nichome. You know, a warren of small narrow streets crammed with tiny bars. I would fall home drunk every morning and fall in love every night. (laughs) I hoovered up dark-eyed Japanese boys, you know, climbed into bed with Korean waiters and woke up on futons with Israeli dancers, Canadian writers, and one French hairdresser. (laughs) (laughs) Japanese, Japanese have a very relaxed attitude, uncomplicated attitude to sex, including the gay variety. unencumbered by prudery or guilt. However, social convention is very strong, and alternative lifestyles are frowned upon. So while gay sex might not be a big deal, however, living in a gay lifestyle and, you know, and rejecting the expected path of marriage and a wife and two kids, well, that was a very big deal indeed. So although the denizens of Nichome were generally looked upon with a kind of well indulgent amusement, they were nevertheless considered misfits, and they tended to attack kindred spirits. Nu Sazai was a small, dingy, one-room bar in the red glow of coloured lights you know, up a narrow stairs on the second floor of a small, nondescript grey building. It wasn't a gay bar so much as it was a misfit bar. The clientele of you know, punks, gangsters, artists, junkies, transvestites, nuts, prostitutes and runaways, you know, they all felt comfortable here, among its tatty stools, you know, graffiti-scrawled walls, you know, tucked away among the gays of Nichomi and it soon became my regular haunt, you know, drinking bottles of beer and learning slang from ageing, hair-oiled gangsters or making a fool of myself over some pretty, tattooed rockabilly and his bored girlfriend. <laughs> you know, uh, and overseeing all of this, a collection of, well, friendly weirdos and interesting oddballs was a sweet, you know, skinny, older leather queen who, who knew everyone by name and treated everyone, whether prostitute or businessman, with the same easy maternal familiarity. And it was here, among the beer and the smoke and the stories, that I found my, well, family of sorts. Tall, handsome, floppy-haired misfit Masa showed me how to make Japanese food and eventually ended up marrying my blonde English friend, Sandy. Crinkle-eyed, shuffling, long-haired misfit Kazuha was never without his camera and always smiley stoned. And sweet, funny misfit Hiroko with her fringe always in her eyes and always you know, considered a dubious spinster, you know, and only in her late 20s. We'd stay up all night dancing and listening open mouths to another outrageous story from seen-it-all Lucy, who had been an escort for over 30 years, and then Hiroko would potter off to her dull office job, where her shamelessly unconventional lifestyle was caused for suspicion and gossip. Hiroko, however, refused to bend to other people's expectations. There are, however, no expectations to be bent to if you are a 22-year-old Irish gay boy in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. You know, I was free to be whomever and whatever I wanted to be, and it turned out that I wanted to be panty. You know, when I went to Tokyo, I had no intentions of doing drag at all, you know, and I had assumed that my brief, less-than-illustrious career as a badly-painted mess you know, was behind me in Dublin. But in the spring of 1992, I met Angelo in a bar in Nichome, and we became fast friends immediately, you know, bonding over a shared sense of humor, similar taste in movies and fellas, and, and drag. Angelo was a much more experienced drag queen than I was. You know, he had started doing drag in Atlanta, Georgia, you know, a city with a long and rich drag tradition, where his you know, glamorous, big-haired, country-flavored character, Lurleen, you know, hosted <laughs> parties and lip-synced country ballads and quirky pop tracks. And before I knew it, he was agreeing on our behalf to perform as a double act as a local club. And, well, I've always been easily led. <laughs> with some difficulty in petite-sized Japan, we managed to pull some sort of look together. We rehearsed a simple routine to an ABBA number and turned up at the club with our backing track on a cassette tape. You know, Thinking I'd make a fresh start from the car crash art student drag I had been doing in Dublin, I decided I needed a new drag name. And after spending no time at all thinking about it, I chose the name Letitia <laughs> after a pet sheep we had had in Mayo as children. <laughs> I'm not making that up. <laughs> um, so Lurleen and Letitia, we did our first gig, and thanks no doubt to, um, well, copious amounts of alcohol and ecstasy, well, was the early <laughs> 90s, um, people seemed to enjoy it, and we were asked back again and again, and again, and before long, we were doing small shows regularly in a few different clubs, and well, having a blast. However, it soon became apparent that the names Lurline and Letitia were not working for us. You know, Japanese people have great difficulty with the English sounds <laughs> letters L and R. You know, finding them difficult to pronounce and even to differentiate between. So people could never remember our names. We quickly decided that what we needed to do was to come up with a group name, and our shtick, of course, our USP, as the kids might say, was that we were foreign drag queens, so we decided that we should pick a name that was English, but that at the same time was easy for Japanese people to remember and pronounce, and we also wanted something that sounded cutesy, you know, that would fit in or appeal to the Japanese manga aesthetic, and the name that we came up with was Candy Panty. And it seemed to fit all the requirements, and indeed, candy and panty are both words that the Japanese already use. You know, they've borrowed them from English. But now our intention was that Candy Panty was just a group name, and that we would still individually be Lurleen and Letitia. But immediately, people started to call us Candy and Panty. And it became a nickname, and like so many nicknames, they stick. Until eventually, even I forgot that I was ever called anything else. That's what the surname Bliss part, well, one night after a gig the club owner wanted us to fill in a form to get paid. And there was a space for a family name. And until that moment, like Cher, I had never <laughs> even given the family name a second thought. <laughs> so I just put down the first thing that came into my head, bliss. Now, in those prehistoric, you know, early 90s, you know, before the internet and RuPaul's Dragways, the only way to learn the basic skills of drag was through trial and error, and hopefully from a more experienced you know, queen who would give you the benefit of her experience. And, um, in the drag world, it's an informal system that's known as drag mothers, you know, where older queens pass on the tricks and secrets of the trade to favoured younger girls. It's a kind of apprenticeship. Now, nowadays, you know, many of the transformative secrets of the drag queen can be gleaned from thousands of YouTube video tutorials on the subject. But even today, nothing beats a word of advice from a drag mother or simply being able to watch her get ready. You know, back in Dublin. I had fumbled through entirely on my own. I had never even seen a real drag show. You know, unlike Britain, of course, with its working men clubs and end of pure entertainment, we don't really have a popular drag tradition. My interest in drag as an entertainment form was simply because it seemed to me to be the logical result of all the kinds of things that I was interested in. Dressing up, uh, making things, performing, uh, camp movies, extravagant costumes, I just wanted to be one of the glove-wearing, cinch-waisted, glamorous women that flounced petulantly across my Sunday afternoon TV or poured from my subconscious onto my schoolbooks. Because although they often looked bored, they never looked boring. So doing drag with Lurline for me, was a revelation. Because it was fun. You know, at home, drag had essentially been a solitary activity. There wasn't a drag scene to speak of, and I didn't have drag queen friends to run around with and do silly shows with. But with Lerline, Lurleen- it was fun. You know, laughing, screaming, sweating, falling over boy, kissing, waking up with bruises, attention, grabbing, outrageous, fun. You know, we were partners in mischievous, cross-dressing crime, and we were game for anything. We did stupid lip-sync shows in basement gay clubs and hostess and acted the fools at dance clubs. We performed at parties and art galleries and wound up in pop videos and in magazine spreads. We paraded you know, damply in the sweltering humid heat of Tokyo's first ever Pride Parade and clambered giggling into cars with gangsters and other dubious characters. You know, painted and teased and tottering in heels, I tripped and ran and stumbled and crawled my way through emporia of nighttime iniquity. You know, I devoured everything I came into contact with, art, boys, music, drugs, gangsters, dykes, gays, love, sex, beauty. You know, no experience would be left unturned, no offer rejected, nothing ventured, nothing gained. It was, admittedly, a risky strategy. But it worked for me because when I finally did stop and look in the mirror, I was a bit battered and maybe a little bruised, but the person looking back at me was me. And maybe for the first time in my life, it was someone that I recognized as me, even under all the makeup. I was on the other side of the world, but I had found my tribe.